0: Hello, Course Correction listeners. It's me, Nela Hedayat. I am happy to report that me and my team are busily working on the next season of our podcast, where you'll hear personal stories from refugees and the global efforts to support them. But in the meantime, I wanted to let you know about another great show being produced by Doha Debates in partnership with foreign policy. It's sports-themed, it's a podcast called The Long Game, and it highlights stories of courage and conviction on and off the field. Recently, the host of The Long Game, Iptiaj Muhammad, appeared on the FP podcast Foreign Policy Playlist, where she talks about her own history as the first US athlete to wear a hijab during the Olympics. She also introduced the first episode of the series. We thought you'd enjoy taking a listen, so we're featuring that episode on our feed as well. So, whilst you're waiting for our next season, please do subscribe to The Long Game and stay tuned to this feed for more course correction coming out this spring.
1: Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring our newest podcast from FP Studios in partnership with Doha Debates. It's called The Long Game. The series is hosted by the athlete, activist, and best-selling author Ibtihaj Muhammad, who became the first US athlete to compete for a medal at the Olympics wearing a hijab. In each episode, Ibtihaj highlights stories of courage and conviction, on and off the field, examining the power of sport to change the world for better. In just a moment, we're going to play the first episode of the series, which tells the story of Friba Rezaei, the first woman to represent Afghanistan in the Olympic Games. But first, I spoke with the long-game host, Ibtihaj Muhammad about her career and why sports and politics may not be as distinct as many people may think.
2: I've been an athlete my entire life from the earliest memories. I just remember always spending time either outside with my brothers and sisters or just you know on the field of of play it was really important for my parents to get me and my siblings involved in sport from a young age I feel like they saw the value in not only us being active but just having like healthy relationships with not just ourselves and our bodies but also our friends and as a not only religious minority but also an ethnic minority growing up in the united states because my skin or even my faith have often been political in a sense. I feel like I've always been an activist, like I was born an activist. And part of uh, my journey through sport has been really just shedding light on the importance of inclusion and diversity when it comes to sport. And now as a retired athlete, really understanding the importance of using my platform for change and wanting to be an agent of good in this world. And a lot of that lends itself to showing up in my day to day as an activist.
1: What was that process like for you finding your voice as as an activist?
2: Well, when you are constantly told that, you know, you don't belong or that, and somehow or some way you, as your onth- authentic self, you know, are not enough, You, I feel like you have two choices. You can either, you know, recede or, you know, choose not to show up in that space. Maybe in, if you think about it from the framework of sport, as young athletes we can choose not to participate, or um, you can kind of hold fast to this dream of, you know, being present in that sport and taking up space in that sport. And for me, um, there was never a question of whether or not I belonged. It was really kind of forcing change and helping other people understand that sport is a space for everyone. I think that that's always been the beauty of sport for me is that as a fencer, when I put on my fencing mask for the first time at 12 years old, I really early on understood that there was so much power in that moment. No one knew underneath, you know, my mask that I was a girl or that, you know, I had brown skin or that I was Muslim and that I wore hijab. It was really more so about what I could bring to the table as an athlete, like how good could you be? And that, you know, is what, the foundation of sport is built on it's about bridging people from different cultures from different backgrounds who may even speak different languages and uniting them under this umbrella of you know really this ultimate goal of winning and um, that's what I've always loved about sport and I feel like it's just a space where we can really create meaningful change in the world.
1: You were you made history as the first American athlete to, to wear the hijab while competing in the Olympics. What was what was that experience like? I mean, it must have been so inspiring for I me, mean, not only for women but also you know women of color and particularly young Muslim women to to see you out there on this you know international stage wearing the hijab whilst whilst competing.
2: I qualified for my first Olympic team back in 2016, and it was the height of the U.S. presidential election. Mm. There were a lot of then-candidates who were really building their presidential campaign around Islamophobia and this demonizing of the Muslim community. And so when I qualified in, in February of 2016 as one of the first Americans to even qualify for the Olympic team... I knew immediately that this journey was bigger than me, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't about necessarily me and like being this fencer and going to the Olympics. I was in a time and place where I had the opportunity to change the narrative for a global community to set a new precedent of, you know, who a Muslim woman could be. Just by showing up as myself is the only thing that I know. Um, I had the opportunity to change the narrative. This. Really dark narrative that had been created over a long time of the Muslim community through hollywood through through the news through media, this narrative of Muslims just being shaped in this negative way of um being associated with terrorism, Muslim women being forced to wear hijab, us speaking you know different like la- a different language, not being American. Mm-hmm and as someone who is african american, american by birth, i have no other, you know, association with any other country other than the united states choosing to wear hijab and not being forced to wear hijab by anyone and feeling really comfortable in using my voice, i feel like i was ultimately shattering so many stereotypes and i was showing people you know like this global community a different lens of communities that are important to me. Mm-hmm. But also showing other Muslim, particularly Muslim women and girls, you know, what's possible, you know, when you choose to not live confined by society's limited expectations of you.
1: Did you have uh, Muslim women and girls reach out to you in that moment? I mean, it must be very inspiring for
3: them.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's still to me uh, one of those moments in my life that is like what I call like a pinch me moment. You know, there's so much about the Olympics that seemed impossible for so long. You know, I when I talk about the Olympics, it's to just for full disclosure, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, um, qualifying for a U.S. Olympic team. But it also to me was such an impossible dream. It seemed so impossible for so long that I always felt like if I even spoke the word, you know, Olympics, that it would disappear, right? That's how fragile this dream felt. So to have put in so much hard work, like the blood, the sweat, the tears, things that people don't see and have this dream come to fruition, I just felt like it wasn't for me. It was just for a community of people around the globe. And it was an opportunity for us to see ourselves because for so long, you know, we, hadn't seen ourselves in sport. You know, society never depicts Muslim women as athletes. We don't see ourselves, you know, when we walk in the sporting goods stores. So it was a really important moment in time. And hopefully it charters a new path for our youth going forward.
1: What do you think needs to be done to make sports more inclusive?
2: Well, I mean, that's such like a layered question. Because it depends, you know, where you are, you know, what region of the world you live in. Um, I can speak to fencing and like my sport, for example, where so much of the sport of fencing historically has been reserved for just one community, and that's like essentially wealthy white white community. How How do you make fencing, you know, more inclusive? You literally provide it in different communities. Like in the United States, you only find fencing in communities that have, you know, higher tax brackets. So making it available in more public schools, creating community programs around the sport of fencing, providing free equipment, providing, you know, maybe free lessons, free memberships to clubs, um, but just creating spaces where, you know, kids can learn the sport itself. Even showing it on television would be huge for smaller sports like fencing. For a lot of underserved and underrepresented communities, they don't even know that, you know, these sports like gymnastics or hockey, lacrosse, fencing, that they're even possible for them because they're not shown to them. Um, and when we talk about different societies that may not have you know, the same financial situation as we have in the United States, a lot of it just has to do with creating programs that we put in different communities that encourage the participation in sports outside of something like, you know, say, basketball or soccer.
1: And there's, you know, there's a long, rich history of, of athletes using their platforms for activism. But what do you say to people who say that, you know, they shouldn't do that, 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 that politics or activism and, and, and sports should be separate?
2: anyone who thinks that, you know, sits in a seat of privilege, you know, it's hard to tell people who live in a state of struggle, who live in a state of poverty, or um, whose lives are not valued in the same way, simply because of the color of their skin, that they should not use their platforms for change, right? Or they should, you know, be quiet or just, just do their jobs. Anyone who thinks like that literally sits in a seat of privilege and truly doesn't understand how much sport can be used as a vehicle to, to change the world. You know, I I believe in the words of Nelson Mandela and athletes like Tommy Smith and John Carlos and Peter Norman and Muhammad Ali and Colin Kaepernick. And like the list is so long. We have so many different people who have literally given their lives and their freedom for us to even exist in sport to have the opportunity to play especially as athletes of color so why not use you know those people that i've mentioned kind of as models for yourself right i i feel like it's a it's a selfless act right to to consider other people you know before yourself and that's something that my faith teaches me like you have to want for your brother or sister what you want for yourself and if i want equity, if I want equality, if I want equal access, then I have to want that for other people as well.
1: And going back to the, the, the podcast series, which we're going to hear a bit of on the episode today, I mean, what excites you most about this series?
3: Sports
2: and activism to me are just so uniquely aligned that they've always come hand in hand in my life. And when I was given the opportunity to host this podcast, for me, it's like a, a dream come true to continue to spread awareness around even activism and helping people understand that we all have the opportunity in our lives to create change, whether you're an athlete or not. Um, and I believe that we're all athletes. You know, we all should be using our bodies and moving our bodies in a way to keep ourselves healthy. And just to hear about these different organizations and these different athletes who are creating meaningful changes in really large sports say like soccer or football um, and even to to smaller ones like judo it's just to me uh, really inspiring to know that there's always work to be done and that we can all create and be uh, the
1: authors of change. That was Ibtihaj Muhammad, and here now is the episode, The Long Game, Olympic judoka fights for women in Afghanistan, from our very own foreign policy and Doha debates. Since August, tens of thousands
2: of people have fled Afghanistan.
3: The sudden capture of the country's capital has shocked the world
0: and caused bedlam this morning at the Kabul airport. The Kabul airport is the only safe way out of Afghanistan.
3: People are literally clinging on to U.S. military aircraft as they try to take off. As far as commercial flights... Now, were, it's with it's all the athletes fast. leaving the country, all the educated people are leaving the country, I have a concern that the legacy of education and the legacy of sport will leave with them. If education and sport die in a society, what will remain in the society? It will be an empty, meaningless society. From foreign policy
2: and Doha debates, this is The Long Game, a podcast about the power of sports to change the world. I'm your host, Ibtihaj Mohammed. As an African-American, as a Muslim, from birth, you are political. Sports is how I learned to advocate for myself. It's where I found my voice. And this season on The Long Game, we're going to hear from other athletes who are using their voices to create meaningful change in this world. Friba Rezayi knows what it's like to leave her country. She did it once as a child when the Taliban first took over Afghanistan. Friba returned in 2001. She started training in the sport of judo. And in 2004, she became the first woman to represent Afghanistan in the Olympics. But just a year later, Friba was forced to leave Afghanistan again. Friba spent several years in Pakistan and relocated to Canada in 2011. There, she worked tirelessly to support Afghan women in sports and education. Her mission is to help create her country's future leaders. But now that the Taliban is back in power, What's to become of Friba's dream of gender equality in Afghanistan? Here's Friba.
3: I always believed that everybody is equal, everybody's the same, everybody should be respected. And I was a very hard-headed child during Eid, Muslim Families Festival, like Christmas. My mother made a joke that We are getting new clothes for the boys, but not for the girls, just to tease me. And one of my brother confirmed that, and I slapped him very hard, and I was only five years old. I did not like being treated like that, even for a second, as a joke, because to me, it didn't make any sense. I was like, if I'm born, if I exist, I should have the same rights as my brother's. I was born in Afghanistan, in the capital, Kabul. I was born in a big family. I had three sisters and four brothers. Given the Afghan society and Afghan culture and perspective towards women and girls, there was no gender equality. Boys and girls were always separated. And that always bothered me because I did not see any fun in playing with the dolls or like sitting at home, like playing kitchen or like tea party. I was a very outdoor person. I always wanted to be very active, always very, what we call uh, boyish games. I was not allowed to go outside and play soccer with the boys, but I did. I was not allowed to go to just hang out with the boys outside and I always got in trouble, but I always did that because I wanted to set a precedent as a child for my existence and for my rights. My father always supported me. He's a very supportive dad. Uh, He always loved us no matter what we did, and he always supported us no matter what we did. Uh, My mother had the expectation from me that I would grow up and I would get married at early age. I would bear children, and I would become an obedient housewife, and I would become a good mother, a mother of probably six or seven uh, children in Afghanistan, and I will have a very small and traditional life. Um, she always expected that uh, from me, but when I turned out to be the opposite, she was disappointed at the beginning. She wasn't happy when I played sport, when I went to my dojo, when I went for boxing. She was upset with me, and there were times that whenever I came home from my judo training, in order to make her happy, I would immediately go do the chores, do the laundry, wash the dishes, clean house to make her happy. But later, after the Olympics, she was realizing that this is what I wanted to do, and she supported me after that. Uh,
2: What appears to be happening is that the Taliban are advancing.
3: In 1995 when the Taliban took over the central government for the first time my family became refugees and we went to neighboring uh, country Pakistan and we went to Peshawar is the closest province to the Afghan border. Small refugee house and we had uh, cable at that time in a very we had a very small glass tv. My brothers always watched uh, Mike Tyson matches, they were a huge fan of uh, heavy boxing. And I always watched those matches with them. And I also watched Leila Ali, the daughter of Muhammad Ali.
0: Introducing the undefeated Leila. She be stinging Ali.
3: Seeing her fight like that be very strong and very confident That really spoke to me, and I wanted to do the same thing. I wanted to train hard, I wanted to practice hard, and I wanted to challenge her. In my mind, she was my idol and icon, as well as my opponent, secretly. Like, I'm going to go train hard, and I'm going to challenge her.
0: The world changed after the September 11 attacks on the United States. At the time, Afghanistan was ruled by the Taliban, who refused to give up Osama bin Laden, On my orders, the United United States States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan.
3: When USA invaded Afghanistan in 2001, My family returned to Afghanistan immediately, like so many other Afghan families. And when we went back to Afghanistan, we started a normal life. Everybody was expecting a normal life. I was enrolled in all-girls school. My brothers were enrolled in school. My dad got a job. My older brother got a job with the UN. So life was good. I was still very, very interested in uh, pursuing my boxing dream. One of my sports teachers introduced me to the Afghan National Olympic Committee. They assigned a male boxing coach. He trained me. He agreed to train me. And he did. He trained me for a few weeks. But it was becoming very, very dangerous in Afghanistan to train boxing because I was the only girl practicing in the entire country at that time. One day, my coach called me and he said that he can no longer uh, train me because it's not safe anymore. There were a few religious and fundamentalist guys who were waiting for me to come for the training to hurt me. They were waiting there with the knives, with the flogs, and so many other tools to capture me and to hurt me. When I insisted that I wanted to train because I had a dream to go to... Las Vegas fight Leila Ali. When I insisted on the phone that I know I want to continue my training, my coach said that sport is not valuable than your life, and he hung up the phone. There was no way for me that I could continue my boxing, uh, but I was still in the search of finding a sports center in Afghanistan where I could go and train. And I found out there was a place where they trained girls this was a small dojo. I ran towards the dojo, and I was only 16 years old. I was, like, full of energy. There was dust in my hair, on my shoes. I met my coach, Farhad Hazrati, who's still my coach, with, like, short breath. And I told him that, Coach, I want you to train me boxing because I want to challenge Leila Ali. He just stared at me, and he was like, Okay, come in. He trained me boxing for a few days, but he later uh, told me, we don't train boxing here, but we train judo. As soon as I walked in on the judo mats, when my feet touched the mats, I knew that this is it. This is how I will find my strength as well as my freedom. We were only three teenagers practicing judo in the entire country. There were other girls, but they were very young. We were peers. We wanted to support each other, and we wanted to encourage other girls. We knew that this is not only sport for us. This is how we bring visibility to our rights. I wanted to show and prove it to the Afghan society that women and girls are as strong as boys and men, and we can do it. And also show it to the world that Afghanistan has such girls and such women who are fighting for their rights, who are working very hard to normalize women's rights. So it was very significant. It was very precious to us. In Judo, we have a philosophy by saying tai sabaki in Japanese, which means the control of your body. Then that is itself is very empowering. Once you have control of your body, mind, you have control of your life, and then you can lead and you can lead as an example for the rest of the people in the community. I was very proud to be able to train and uh, lead the kids at the dojo, and I was also gaining respect. So the, the connection between the sport and women's leadership is very significant, very strong. You can't separate the two. National Olympic Committee was getting ready to send Afghanistan's team to the Olympics. And I was selected to represent Afghanistan and uh, represent (laughs) women at the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens. That itself was a huge achievement uh, for me. I was honored, I was privileged uh, to be able to represent my country. And I competed uh, against a four times world champion from Spain. I entered the mat, I wanted, I wanted to win. I did not win, and I was very upset. I was crying historically, and I called my family members, um, especially my father and one of my brother, and I, I was crying on the phone, and I told my father that I'm so sorry, I did not win, I laid you down. But my father said that don't worry if you didn't win you made history this is like first step on the moon that was very encouraging and that made me feel better that was it history was made i became the first afghan woman to participate in the olympics that was very proud moment i'm still proud of it and i'm still hold that very precious to me When I returned from the Olympics, I was still at high school, and I went back to high school to continue my class as one of my uh, teachers. She was very, very nice, and she was very kind to me. And she gathered a group of uh, girls to uh, sing the national anthem (laughs) to me, and they did. It was very sweet, very uh, nice. Imagine those girls in their black and white uniform, and they stood in front of me. They sang the national anthem, and my teacher was very supporting. And she gave me a big hug, and she kissed my forehead, and she said that you're pride of our uh, country. When I returned to my dojo, the number of enrollment at the judo and judo sport at the dojo increased. There were a lot of like hundred, I would say hundreds of girls and women who wanted to play sport and this was a sports revolution for afghan women it opened a pathway for other afghan girls to to play other sports so many other girls joined different sports volleyball basketball soccer you name it afghan women did and this was also a message to the world that there are women and girls in afghanistan who are fighting for their rights and they want Afghanistan to be same as the rest of the world.
2: You're listening to the Long Game from Foreign Policy and Doha Debates. I'm your host, Iptihaj Mohammed.
1: We'll be right back after this break.
2: And now back to Friba Rezaiyi and her story about women and sports in Afghanistan.
3: I was receiving death threats from the fundamentalists, from the religious people, and also from patriarchy. They said that this is. Un Islamic, this is untraditional of Afghan girls to compete at international arena and not cover her head, show some skin, although judo uniform is very covered. It has long jacket and very covered pants. I did not have a typical Afghan girl look. I cut my hair very short like boy's haircut and I dyed it red and I refused to cover my head and I would I would go outside and walk like that and that put me on the spot. So, I was a little bit famous in the local community. These people were sending me threatening messages by text messages, um phone calls as well as they dropped letters at our house. People would verbally abuse me, physically abused me. And I was under a lot of uh, threats that I could not even go outside. I would just stay at home. I went into hiding. I went into hiding for a couple of months for my and for my family's safety. What drove me to Canada is is freedom. To be able to practice and to be able to do whatever I want to do, there is no limits. I have always wanted to help other Afghan women, to get their education and as well as they have access to sports and sports leadership. In 2018, myself with other activists, as well as university professors, we came together and we formed the Women Leaders of Tomorrow. Our first objective is to find scholarships and bursaries for young qualified Afghan women from Afghanistan to North American universities. And our second component is our sports component GOAL, G-O-A-L, which stands for Girls of Afghanistan LEAD, the goal was to train these girls professionally in the highest level possible so they become their community leaders, they become professional athletes or become the sports instructors, especially judo instructor, because in Afghanistan we don't have a prominent female judo coach. And we provide online mentorship as well as uh, English language training an English language uh, program for the Afghan women and girls in Afghanistan. The goal and the purpose of this is that so Afghan women learn the international language and they can speak for themselves in their own words, because it's crucial for us to hear the authentic stories from Afghanistan, from those women directly. This project was very, very successful, and we were producing leaders. We were achieving our goals. We had so many plans, including the plan to send our team to 2024 Olympic Games. And the girls were still practicing, and they practiced judo on the mats until the day that the Taliban returned. The Taliban are now in complete control of Afghanistan. The sudden capture of the country's capital has shocked the world, seizing nearly all of the country in just over a week. Hours after arriving in Kabul, sitting at the president's desk. All our rights and freedom were halted overnight. My heart was broken, my heart was bleeding, but my mind could not comprehend the fact that this was happening. We lost everything. We are in uncertainty. We don't know what's gonna happen. Everybody went into hiding. Our dojos shut down, they're still shut down. Everybody is terrified because everybody's waiting for that knock from the Taliban at the door to come and uh, capture them and take them to their Sharia law. Taliban were patrolling the neighborhood where our dojos are, they actually sat down inside our dojos and they were waiting for the girls to come for the training so they can apprehend the girls directly there. But the girls were very intelligent. They did not go to do the practice because they knew the Taliban are patrolling the neighborhood. The Taliban also started taking a survey in the neighborhood, writing down the names of those people who worked for the government, who worked for the international organization. They included the female athletes in that list. One of our prominent Judo athletes sent me a message saying that the Taliban raided her house and the Taliban wanted to capture her and bring her to justice. And they ordered her to come and appear at the local mosque in front of the members of the community and in front of the local leader of the Taliban. They scheduled her to be lashed or flogged 100 times in front of people for playing sport. We were able to get her to safety immediately with our contacts and our resources, but she was in hiding and on the run from the Taliban for three weeks.
1: The airport now overrun, desperate, chaotic scenes as massive crowds surge onto the tarmac, desperate to get out of the
3: country. Thousands of Afghans are stranded at the airport with their suitcases and whatever other belongings they could muster together. We tried to get her in one of those airplanes either to Canadian or U.S. military airplanes. We added her name on the list. She was on the official list for the flights. She waited five nights uh, in the car with her dad to get a chance to get on the plane at the airport and there were suicide bombers. Many people were killed. There was total chaos. I'm sure you have seen the pictures from the Kabul airport. So she was there. She did not get a chance to get on the plane and the flights stopped. There were no flights, there were no airplanes. While this was happening, my Afghan coach, the coach that I asked to train me boxing because I wanted to challenge Leila Ali, he was on Taliban's list as well. Taliban was particularly looking for him. He would be judged for training girls and allowing the two gender to practice at the same time. And because he has been supporting and training Afghan women and Afghan girls for such a long time, for the last two decades, we had to find a safety and shelter for him as well. And then with, with our contacts, with our collaboration with uh, IJF, International Judo Federation, uh, we managed to secure visas for them to Uzbekistan. They are now both in Uzbekistan in Tashkent. but the rest of the Judo team remaining in Afghanistan, they are in such a vulnerable situation and they're terrified for their lives. I am terrified for their lives. Everybody is forced to stay at home. There are no sport, there's no education. Taliban recently released a decree that girls are not allowed to go to school above 6th grade. They closed all the secondary schools and education for girls and women. And they also closed all the universities. Taliban simply banned women from participating in any sort of sport. And right now, our dujos are locked, like literally locked. They put a lock at the door. And one of our athletes was still in Afghanistan. She says that this is my life now. All I do is I'm in my living room or in our bedroom. All I do is eat, sleep, and breathe. And she says, this is not the meaning of life. This is not the purpose that I was I was born. I am trying and I'm working tirelessly to get our judo team into safety as soon as we can. It's extremely difficult, it's extremely complicated, but we are working. I'm not giving up my hope and we are still planning to send our team and hopefully two girls to the 2024 Olympic Games. It is devastating because Afghan women had so many achievements and so many goals in the last two decades. Women run for office, women run businesses, women were in the parliament, women they were female athletes, teachers, doctors, you name it, Afghan women did. And we hold those achievements and gains very dear to us, very precious to us. A 18-year-old in our program in Afghanistan right now said to me, Friba, I want to become the first female president of Afghanistan. And I asked her, how? And she says, if you study history and if you look out throughout the history, none of these dictators, none of these regimes lasted forever. Taliban are not going to last forever either. I am 18 years old. I want to go pursue my higher education in a Western country and get my education, get my master's and get my PhD. By the time I receive and I get my higher education, get my PhD, Taliban will be gone from Afghanistan and I will return to Afghanistan and I will become a leader and I will lead my country. I'm very, very proud of her and I also believe in her. She is still in Afghanistan. We are trying to find her a scholarship at one of the colleges or even high school because her high school is closed now. Her studies are interrupted. It is very difficult, but we are trying to find her a scholarship I believe in the power of people of Afghanistan, and I believe in the power of women and girls of Afghanistan. As much as Afghanistan has been devastated and has seen crisis before, we are very, very strong, especially Afghan women are very strong.
0: Afghan women activists are risking their lives in order to protest. Demanding
3: Rifle care. butts and tear
1: gas used against women asking only to work, go to school, and to be included in Afghanistan's new government.
3: A machine gun burst sends a clear message. The protest is over. I had never seen Afghan women so strong and so united. That is what is driving me. That is my hope. As much as I'm devastated, I cannot afford to lose hope, and I'm not giving up on my hope, because hope is the only thing that keeps us going. Regardless of our geographical location, our team in Afghanistan and Afghan women in diaspora, we have centered our voices, we are helping each other, we are lifting each other up. There's a great uh, unity among us now, We all have the same message, we all have same goals, and we are all working together to achieve the same goal, which is peace and human rights, women's rights in Afghanistan. I believe that the principles of human rights, democracy, and women's rights are stronger than men with a gun.
2: That's it for this episode of The Long Game. I'm your host, Iftihaj Mohammed. The Long Game is a co-production of Foreign Policy and Doha Debates. This episode was produced by Cherie Turner and Karen Given with help from Dan Efron, Rob Sachs, Jay Weeks, Amjad Atala, and Jigar Metha. Make sure to follow us on Apple or your favorite podcast app, and please leave us a review. To learn more, subscribe to Foreign Policy a global magazine of news and ideas, or visit Doha Debates, a production of Qatar Foundation.
3: This season on The Long Game. This is how we show the world a different narrative, a different story about the Palestinian people, about the struggle we live. In football, we believe that we are free.
2: Now imagine that you're in the middle of these people who are your designated enemies, your so-called enemies. It shows the final feelings that sport and cricket can harness.
1: I think the turning point was when we saw the video of the Liverpool supporters and they're singing, if he scores another few then I'll be Muslim too, and sitting in the mosque that's where I want to be.
2: And we'll take a look at the protests that often accompany mega size sporting events, including the 2022 Qatar World Cup, and ask the question, can mega-event activism actually lead to lasting change? That's this season on The Long Game.
1: And that was the episode, The Long Game, Olympic Judoka Fights for Women in Afghanistan, from Foreign Policy and Doha Debates. My thanks to Ibtihaj, Doha Debates and the FT podcast team for sharing this new series with us. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Simone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron.